times have you heard the power of prayer? And yet there are so many different types of teachings about prayer. There is a whole movement out there of a name it and claim it. That if you pray over it, it's going to happen. And you know what? Scripture doesn't say anything about that. Jesus didn't teach that. Nowhere do we see that. However, there are people who are under a teaching and a belief that as long as they pray it, it's going to happen. And when it doesn't happen, they become discouraged. They become a little jaded and they go, well, where is this Jesus? Where is this Savior? Where is this healing? I was taught that I just need to pray it and have enough faith. And it would happen. So this morning we're going to look at, there is power in prayer. But there is power in proper prayer. So we need to understand prayer when it comes to Scripture and what God reveals to us about prayer. And that's where James is going to head us to this morning. We're in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. And if you have your Bible this morning, I hope you do, please rise with us for the honoring of the public reading of God's Word. James chapter 5 is also in the leaflet of your bulletin this morning. James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So reads God's inerrant, infallible, and holy word. Please be seated, church. The writer of this epistle, James, according to church tradition, he had a nickname. Anybody know the nickname of James? I know some of you do. Some of you are a little shy. James was known as Old Camel Knees. Now, for most of us, that's not a nickname we necessarily want people to call us. Hey, Old Camel Knees. But he didn't get it just because gravity had taken over and his quads were sagging a little bit down. That's not where it came from. It came from the hours and hours that he had spent on his knees praying, from the calluses that developed on his knees. James was a man of prayer. James knows something about prayer. And here at the end of this letter, he's going to write to encourage believers about the power of proper prayer. We must understand the context of this passage, though. This passage has been used by so many different types of teachers with all different types of ideas about prayer. They use this as a proof text of, see, this is why we have to pray this way or that way. But we must understand the context to rightly divide it. Remember, the book of James is written to Jewish believers who are being persecuted for their faith in Christ. We see this in the book of Acts, exactly what was going on in chapter 8 in the book of Acts. It says, And Saul approved of his execution. Just right before this, Stephen became the first martyr. And Saul that you read here later becomes the Apostle Paul, just before his conversion. Saul is there. He approves of Stephen's execution. 
And there arose on that day, we read in Acts 8, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is what's going on in the context. Believers were scattered because of the persecution. Now it's so important for us to keep that in mind as we study this passage. What was going on? They were being persecuted for their faith. They were suffering for their belief in Christ. But oftentimes, when people think of suffering, what do you think they immediately think of? Physical ailments, right? They're suffering with a stomach ache. They're studying with, suffering with a headache. They're suffering with a broken Achilles tendon. Right? And I praise God that I'm up on two feet again. But we often think immediately to physical ailments. We think of physical suffering. But James is not talking about this type of suffering. He just finished, if you were with us last week, at the beginning of chapter 5, he just finished speaking about these rich landowners that were taking advantage of the Christian workers. Those laborers that would work for them, they were taking advantage of not paying them properly, not giving them the means to support their families. James uses a Greek word here for suffering, and it refers to enduring evil treatment by people. Now stop there and let that resonate for a little bit. Have you ever endured evil treatment from others? Most of us, if not all of us, have at one time or another. That is what he is speaking of in context here. Enduring evil treatment from others. He is not speaking about physical ailments. And it's so important as we go and start studying this passage that we study it with this in mind. He's speaking about suffering. James chapter 5, verse 13, you'll see again, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? Again, this Greek word refers to enduring evil treatment by people. Well, were they suffering? Absolutely they were suffering. He just wrote about them who were suffering. So he's reminding them, look, if you are suffering, here's what you're to do. Pray. And it's in the present tense. It means keep on praying. Keep praying. Basically what James is saying is, in suffering, you've got to cling to Jesus. You've got to cling so tightly. You've got to keep praying, keep seeking. Church, I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, but I prayed and it's still going. You know what I say? Keep praying. Keep clinging to Jesus. Keep going. And that's how James starts off. He says, is anyone out there suffering? Which the answer would have been, of course. He says, pray. Keep praying. Keep going. Persevere in prayer. Don't give up. Cling to Jesus. We see the same exhortation throughout the New Testament. Colossians 4.2 says, continue steadfastly in prayer. A lot of you know 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Continue to pray. Stop there real quick. Don't raise your hand, but how many of us have said, but I already prayed. I already prayed about that. What's next? Pray again and pray again and again. 
until God has taken you and helped you to endure all the way through that trial, through that suffering. Keep clinging to Jesus. We're encouraged in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 17 to cast all of our anxieties onto Christ because He cares for us. In suffering, we have all kinds of concerns. Give them to the Lord. God knows everything. Church, do you realize there is hope in suffering? Now, sadly, it often is an academic thing. Like, I know what Scripture says, but when I'm in the midst of suffering, oh, how it hurts. And oh, how it's hard to see through it all. But Scripture's so clear that there's hope. James already opened up this letter by telling us to count it all joy when we meet various kinds of trials, knowing that the trials are building endurance in us. I said this last week, and I'll say it again. I don't know the last trial you went through that you were like, woohoo, sign me up again. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying it's going to feel good. He says, although it doesn't feel good, know that God will use it for your good and for his glory. God is going to use it. The Apostle Paul wrote something very similarly to the believers in Rome. In Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul the Apostle says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Stop there. Take a breath. We do what? We rejoice in our sufferings. Suffering, by its very definition, does not mean something that feels good. But because we have such a great God, he is going to use that suffering. And Paul goes on and says this. He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. We need to press on. We need to keep going. We need to get beyond. I'm just going to throw in the towel. But I need God's grace to help. Suffering is going to produce endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And a hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. We have great hope. Church, when you go through suffering, know this, you're not alone. You're not alone. God knows exactly what you're going through. He's a God of compassion. He's a God of mercy. And God will help you to get through it. He says, cling to him. Seek him constantly. Pray to him. Draw near to him. Think about all the ways that we're treated wrongly. Maybe we're unfairly treated at work or at school. Maybe we're married, and maybe a spouse is treating us unfairly. Or maybe they're persecuting because of our faith in Christ. Or maybe it's our family. Maybe your family's distanced themselves from you because you're a Christian. And they don't want to be around you because you're now a high and mighty holy roller, they'll call you, a Bible thumper. And they want nothing to do with you. And you're suffering through the persecution of just your family. Or maybe there's some other evil that's being done unto you. Whatever the circumstance, whatever the, the environment is, James starts here and he says, first thing, pray. If you're a believer, pray. And keep praying. And keep praying. Cling to the Lord. He says, know this, the Lord is your strength. The Lord is your shield. He's your strong tower. The Lord is your help in a very present time of need. God promises he'll give his grace in a time of need. Are you suffering, church? Pray and keep praying. 
James continues, second thought right after that. He couples it together and says, hey, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. What were their circumstances? They were harsh. Yeah, I like that word. They were harsh. They were suffering persecution. How in the world can they be cheerful? How is that possible? He says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. It means let him rejoice in Christ. Let him sing unto the Lord. Let me ask you this. Is it possible? Just think about it. Is it even possible to be cheerful while enduring suffering? Is that even possible? Some of you cautiously answered, it is. But it's not the natural response, right? But it is possible. The answer is yes. As a matter of fact, those of you familiar with the scriptures, remember back in Acts, Peter and the apostles go and they're sharing about Jesus and they get arrested and they go before the council and they get beaten. And they get told, you will not talk about this Jesus anymore. And scripture said when they left, they rejoiced after being beaten. And they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Oh my. When was the last time we thought that way? Lord, thank you for counting me worthy to, to share in the sufferings of Christ. You know, it's amazing. The Bible tells us that one of the evidences of being submitted to the power of the Holy Spirit, we see it in Ephesians 5.19, that we would address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. By the way, church, it's often very easy to rejoice when things are good. When things are great, it's like, oh man, hallelujah, sing praise. But you know what we have to do when we're suffering? Hallelujah, thank you, God, that you're in control. Thank you, God, that you know the suffering. Thank you, God, that you're going to use the suffering for my good and for your glory. And that we would rejoice and sing praise to him. I love this proverb. Proverbs 17, verse 22 says this, A joyful heart is good medicine but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. How true that is. You know, medically, they've even found that out. That in hospitals, they get people to come through, comedians and, and, and clowns and things like that, that just someone sitting there and laughing brings healing. Rather than dwelling on the misery of suffering, that just dries the bones, that crushes the spirit. That instead, if we were as believers to get our minds fixed upon the Lord, to rejoice, God, this doesn't feel good, but God, I know you are good. And because I know you are good, I will praise you. Wow. That's an action we must put on. It doesn't come naturally. You know what comes naturally? What was me? God, take it away. Make it stop. And make it stop now. But if we would only put on God... You are good. God, you know everything that's going on. And God, I will praise you. James starts off by saying, are you suffering? Pray and keep praying. Are you cheerful? Praise God. Rejoice. It's a type of prayer. And he continues in this next piece in verses 14 and 15 are some of the most misunderstood portions of Scripture. Verses 14 and 15 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. 
And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Remember, how do we discern text? How do we understand what it truly means? The first rule is look at the context. What is James writing about? He's writing to believers who are being persecuted. They're enduring evil. So we must look when he starts here and says, is anyone among you sick? What is he talking about? These are believers who are suffering at the hands of those who are doing evil against them. So it's interesting if we look at the Greek words. We see sick used twice here in English. Verse 14 and verse 15. And interestingly enough, in the Greek, there are two different words. And studying these words helps us better understand these verses. In verse 14, and it might be up here for you, asteneo is the Greek word. And it could mean either being weak or being sick. Well, up to that point, we don't have much help. But in the very next verse, verse 15, we see the word komno. It means weary, exhausted, worn out, become discouraged. Or it could mean sick. So I want you to think about this. If you are enduring ongoing evil treatment from other people, which definition is more fitting? That you are physically sick or that you are just being worn out from all this persecution? That you are weak, that you're spiritually weak, that you're trying to press on, but all of these things going on are wearing you out. Brother and sister, have you experienced that? Well, you're just worn out in the faith. That you're trying to do right, you're trying to follow Jesus, yet all these obstacles are all around you. All these difficulties keep pressing in. That's what James is addressing here. Those who are spiritually weak, that's this word sick. They're exhausted. They've grown weary. They're discouraged. They're flat out feeling defeated. That's what he's speaking of. Now, if you've never been in that situation, I know some of us have. And in our faith, we try to press forward, but man, the circumstances keep beating and beating against us. And these are those who are just feeling flat out, worn out. The writer of Hebrews uses the same Greek word that James used in verse 15. This helps us discern this a little better. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. says, Consider him being Christ. Consider Christ who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary, that's that word, or faint-hearted. What does that mean? It means as we're suffering, as we're enduring evil from others, the writer of Hebrews says, look to Christ as that example. Christ endured so much, and yet he was without sin. And we're going to talk about it in a couple weeks, when those would come and sh shout out, Hosanna, save now! And just a week later, the crowds would yell, Crucify him! Crucify him! It's crazy. And yet this Christ was the example that we might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Paul the Apostle uses the same word that James used in verse 14. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul the Apostle writes, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. Again, those who have been bombarded with life. Those who are being worn out. That's the same that James is speaking about when he says the same. Those who are spiritually being overwhelmed with circumstances. 
I know some of your favorite verse, great verse in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Notice, renew their strength. The opposite of being weary. That sometimes in this Christian life, we grow weary. That suffering might draw us to go, man, I am overwhelmed right now. That's what James is talking about. He's addressing those who are becoming weary from all the suffering. He's addressing those who are feeling like throwing in the towel on their faith. That's who he's talking about. And he commands them in verse 14, James 5, 14. He says, is that you? He says, then call for the elders of the church and let them pray over you. The elders are the spiritual leaders of the church. It is not a popularity contest of who becomes an elder. It's not everybody gets together and says, I like that guy's personality, or I like the way he does this or that. Scripture gives requirements for the elders. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus lay out the biblical requirements that demonstrate the spiritual maturity of the elders. Elders can also be referred to as overseers or pastors. The words are interchangeable. James here commands those who are spiritually weak to call on those who are spiritually strong to pray for them. That's what he's commanding. So are you going through a time of weakness, a time of struggle? Are you battling discouragement? Are you feeling defeated in the faith? Then call on the pastors. Call on the elders to come and to pray for you. Believe it or not, church, this is one of the main biblical callings of the pastor. Say, what? Doesn't he just preach and go home and relax all week? That's not his job. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, the apostles said this. They said, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Some people say, well, Sunday mornings, that's what he's talking about. It's just gathering and preaching. That's part of it. But that's not only what happens in a pastor's life. After Sunday's over, Day by day, the pastor is to encourage those who are having difficulty in life. He's to encourage them in prayer and through the ministry of the word to point them back to Christ, to give them hope again in the gospel. And that's the calling of the pastor, to encourage the people that when they're growing weary, to give them hope once again, that we have a good God. That if we live our, lift our eyes above the troubles that are in front of us, we see again that our God is faithful. That our God has not skipped a beat. That he sees everything that's going on. And here's the part in James chapter 14 that gets kind of sideways. In James 14, 5.14, he goes on and says that the elders are to come pray, but he says they're to anoint the person with oil in the name of the Lord. What does that mean? And depending on what you've been taught or what church you grew up, grew up in, or if you grew up maybe with a Pentecostal background, there was oil flying around everywhere in that church. You were leaving lubed up from head and everything else was coming out, and somehow that, that greasy forehead was going to get you a special blessing. Now, I say that, and I'm not mocking. However, we need to understand what this means. Because people who just read it go, well, that's what it says. It says, call the elders, the elders and anoint you with oil. Okay, what does that mean, though? The elders are to pray for those who are spiritually weak. And are they to put oil 
on them? And if so, what does anointing look like? Do they anoint the forehead? Do they pour it all over their head? Do they do like the, the sinful woman who came and broke it all over the feet of Christ? Where does it go? And how does that work? I was at a Christian concert recently with my family, and that was back when I'm on my scooter, so I'm scooting around. This guy comes up and says, oh, I, I want to pray for you. And I'm, okay. So I close my eyes. I got my wife. Next thing I know is I smack all this stuff on my head, and I open my eyes, and, and he's rubbing my wife's arms, and I'm just like, wow, okay. So I was anointed at that point. So where did he get that idea? Right from here, and he thinks it's being scriptural. It's like this is based on scripture. And for some of us, we have probably practiced this and thought that's totally fine. That's what scripture says. But scripture gives us a different understanding of what James might be referring to here. I want you to think about David. David and Bathsheba. David fell into sin, but Bathsheba gets pregnant, and the baby's going to die. Anybody remember what David did when he found out the baby's going to die? Fell on his face. I heard it. He fell on his face, and he fasted for seven days and cried out to the Lord on behalf of his baby. We see this in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20. David finds out the baby's dead. David didn't make it. It says, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. That whole time, he was grieving for the Lord, crying out. He wouldn't eat, wouldn't touch food. He was crying out to the Lord on behalf of his child. But when it was all done, baby is dead. He gets up, and what does it say he did? He washed and anointed himself. Keep that in mind. When Jesus was teaching about fasting, he also mentioned anointing. Look at the context, what he was talking about in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, starting verse 16. And when you fast, Jesus said, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting might be seen by others. It's like, oh man, he's such a righteous person. Look at him. Look how horrible he looks because he's suffering through this fasting. Truly, Jesus says, I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you fast, look what Jesus says, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, we got two examples now. We got David. He fasted for a week, wouldn't touch food or nothing. He's on his face. He gets up, he washes himself, anoints his head. We now have Jesus who says, hey, when you're fasting, don't be like the hypocrites who get all disheveled and like, woe is me, I'm fasting. He says, anoint your head, clean yourself up, and go about what you're doing. But we also, and I alluded to it earlier, Jesus went to Simon. He, he was a Pharisee, invited Jesus into his house. And while he was there, a woman who was just known as a sinner in the community, most likely a prostitute, she came in and fell at Jesus' feet. And she began to worship him at his feet. And we pick this up in Luke chapter 7. After she had done all of this, she worshiped. She poured out the ointment on his feet. She dried her tears falling on his feet as she worshiped, wiping it with her hair. Jesus says this to Simon, Luke 7, 44. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. Stop there. What's he talking about? What's water for my feet? Is feet thirsty? 
Hospitality's feet are dirty. They're wearing sandals or barefoot. Okay? Hospitality, you showed me no hospitality. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that she has come in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And listen, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Why do I share all these verses for you? To point to that anointing was a custom to help care for one's appearance or aroma. Someone who had been on a long journey would come into your house, and guess what? They're probably pretty dusty and messed up and probably don't smell very good. So you'd put an ointment on them, an oil, to freshen them up and to make them smell a little better. If someone is spiritually weak, if someone is feeling defeated, they might not give a rip about their hygiene. They might be in bed for weeks, months, curled up in a little babe position, thumb in the mouth, just like, I am done. They haven't cared much at all about their personal hygiene. The elders that James is talking to is saying, refresh them. When they come in, pray for them and refresh them. Encourage them in the Lord and get them back into community with other believers. And part of getting them back into community is to refresh them. That's what he's speaking about this anointing, to anoint them. So those of you that have your little vial of olive oil, I'm sorry, if you return it, take it back to the store. You don't need that. Okay? That is not what the scripture, there's not a magical potion that's inside that olive oil. You can't say, well, it came from Israel, it must be holier. See that refreshing, showing hospitality, showing love for that person. That we're not praying for them and sending them back to go in bed for another month. But we're refreshing them and getting them to join community of fellow believers, getting them out of the house around others that would encourage them in the faith. We then see, to prove this point even further, James goes on in verse 15 and says, The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick or the one who is spiritually weak, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven. Think about this. Someone who is spiritually weak, someone who is ready to throw in the towel, how do you think their walk is before the Lord? Probably gotten weak, right? And maybe they've started to say or do things they shouldn't do. And perhaps when they're enduring suffering, they got to a point and said, I'm fed up, and boom, it comes right back. Instead of patiently enduring, now they're retaliating. And James says, when they come to the elders, the prayer of faith from the elders, that not only will they be strengthened, but they will also be forgiven of their sin. Somebody who is the Lord, somebody who's a child of God, who has fallen into a pattern of sin, it is the most refreshing thing for them to be reminded they're forgiven. That they can be reconciled with God once again. That they don't have to walk in shame and guilt anymore. That's what he's calling them. Come to the elders. Come and be prayed for. Come be reminded of God's faithfulness and walk out being completely reconciled to your God. That's what James is talking about. But not only is he talking about this responsibility to call for the elders, but he says you're the church you're also to be praying with one another. You'll see this in verse 16. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now, you guys remember there, there was a, a key part of James where he's talking about God resists the, remember, proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
Do you know what it takes to confess sin to a fellow believer? It takes humility. Because we all want to walk around like we're, we got everything together, like we're a spiritual, you know, super saint, and that there's never any issues in our lives. But the scriptures demand that we go to one another to confess our sins to one another, that we might be healed. I love this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together. He says this. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And I'm sure a lot of us can attest to that. When we withdrew ourselves out of Christian community, man, sin had its field day with us. But when we come back, we're reminded that we're to turn from those things and turn back to Christ. That we would be encouraged and exhorted by the others around us. So again, James says in this verse, he says, we're to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another that we might be healed. There it is again, healed. What kind of healing is he talking about? It's spiritual healing. It's having forgiveness in Christ, not physical healing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, we see something very similar. Speaking of Christ, it says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And look, by His wounds you have been healed. That's not talking about my Achilles tendon or your stomach ache or anything else. It's talking about sin. It's talking about forgiveness. It's a spiritual healing. So let's talk about this real quick. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Church, we have to be so careful because well-intentioned Christians minimize sin when someone else comes up to them to confess sin. Someone is contrite in spirit. They're broken, and they know, I need to go to a fellow believer. I need to confess these sins. I need to be prayed for. And they come up and say, hey, this is what I've been doing. This is a sin in my life. And that well-intentioned Christian, oh, don't worry about it. We all do that. Church, that is not how we're to respond. The Holy Spirit has drawn this person to repentance. The Holy Spirit has drawn this person to obedience. And we just told them, oh, don't worry about it. Go right back into what you were doing. And yet we did it well-intentioned. We were trying to comfort them. We are trying to show them compassion. We're like, don't beat yourself up. Everybody does that. We have to be so careful of how we respond. It's not, oh, that's no big deal. It's, praise God, he's shown you that. And just you confessing that sharpens me as well. And let's pray together. And nothing more. But when we say, oh, it's no big deal, we all do that. I do that all the time. That's not okay. Instead, it's, wow, praise God he's revealed that to you. Praise God he's given you the humility to confess that. And let's pray, knowing that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's talk about a couple things when we confess sin. There's some things to be careful of. One is we don't glorify sin. When you go to tell someone about sin, you're not saying, oh man, it was so great when I did this and I just told them this and I told them that and it was so wonderful and the person's like, oh, that's good. No, it's not. It's sin. We've got to be careful how we communicate sin to one another. Also, be careful not to offer so many details. You know, the Bible speaks about sexual sin a whole lot. And yet when someone comes to confess and gives details of sexual sin, guess what they might do to that other person they're confessing to? Cause them to stumble. 
So we got to be so careful when we confess. They don't need to know all the details. They need to know that you've been struggling in sin and that you want to turn from sin and turn to God. They need to demonstrate a desire to put that sin to death. And church, that's your job to come alongside them and to help them, to encourage them to put that sin to death. That's no longer okay. But God's word and God's spirit has convicted them and shown them they're no longer to walk in that. And they're to confess it, they're to pray, and they're to be healed. The word repentance is a 180 turn. Instead of continue going in it, they're turning to Christ and they're following him. James closes with an example, another example from the Old Testament. If you were with us last week, he spoke of Job, an example of Job through suffering. Here he talks about Elijah. He says in James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. The first thing he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Scripture says at times that Elijah was hungry. Another time he was angry. Another time he was discouraged and depressed. He was a man just like us. And yet look at the way he prayed. How many of us would pray that God doesn't make it rain for three and a half years? Well, maybe some of us have because it seems like it never rained until recently. But typically we would think that seems supernatural, so that seems too big. Why would Elijah pray this way? Why would he pray about three and a half years of it not raining? Because God had already told the Israelites that if they chase after foreign gods, their discipline, their punishment will be that he'll hold back the reins. Elijah was just praying according to Scripture. He already knew the will of God. He already knew that God had warned the people that if you disobey and you flee and go to other gods, He's going to hold back the reins. But here's the other side. He also knew that God said, but if you turn to me and you obey me, he will pour out the blessings of the reins. So what's the big deal with the rain? They didn't live if it didn't rain. They needed food. And if there was no rain, there's no food. So it was God's provision of providing for them. And yet here, this huge drought comes upon them. Elijah prays according to the way scripture had been written. And why does James give it to us? To encourage us to pray according to God's will. The power of proper prayer is knowing that we must pray according to God's will. To pray according to his will. James in chapter 4 verse 3 has already written and said this. He said, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your own passions. Or to spend it on yourself, your selfishness. Well, then how are we to pray? What's the focus of our prayer? Anybody know what the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord, right? With everything that I am. And Jesus said the second is like it. To love my neighbor as myself. So when I pray, I first say, is what I'm praying for demonstrating, first, a love for God, and secondly, a love for my neighbor? Because that's in accordance with his will. Am I praying according to God's will? Am I praying that God would be glorified through all this? 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says this, and this is the confidence. Church, do you want confidence when you pray? Do you want to know that God hears it and God will respond? 
This is the confidence that we have towards him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Anything according to his will. Some of you say, well, I don't know what God's will is for me. No, God's revealed a whole lot of his will right here. And if we would only pray the scripture, we're praying according to his will. And when I say pray the scripture, pray it in context. Know what it's truly saying. Don't just pick up a book about, you know, the, your best life now and, and say, look, there's these one verses that tell me how everything is great right now. If you've been a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that life is not perfect and peachy, but you have an eternal hope that you've been reconciled with your God. And that there's an eternity spent with him in a place that is perfect. But you know that right now there's still difficulties. There's still suffering. So I have a test for you, church. Ready? Here's the quiz. How do you pray for somebody who is in a challenging marriage and wants a divorce? They're done. They want to throw in the towel. They're a professing believer. And they're done. They're like, I want out. I want a divorce. And they come to you as a fellow believer saying, here's where I'm struggling. My marriage has been really bad. It's been bad for a long time. And I'm done. I want a divorce. Go. Okay, so speak of reconciliation. What else? Okay. Give them hope in, in Christ for the marriage. But realize this. When someone comes to you with that confession, they don't want their marriage at that point. They want out. And they want you to encourage them to get out. You guys follow me? This is real life. This happens all the time. One another's not just marriage, but where someone wants to do something contrary to Scripture because they're overwhelmed. How do you respond? Pray for wisdom? Good. James started off by saying, if you lack wisdom, ask God. And he'll give it to you generously. You guys following me? Because this is where the rubber meets the road. That we're to pray for one another. So someone comes up to you and says, I'm done. I want to throw in the towel. You're to encourage them back in the Lord. You're to help them get their eyes above the circumstance in front of them and get them back on the Lord Jesus. And church, I'll tell you, that is not a quick little magical, you know, boop, it's done. You're to love on them. The Bible says grieve with those who are grieving. To rejoice with those who are rejoicing. That you're to spend time with them. But your ultimate goal is to put their eyes back on Christ. To put their eyes back on the glory of God. To ask them the question, how would this decision bring glory to God? And just get them thinking. How would this decision demonstrate your love for God and your love for others? Because when they're at the point where James is speaking of those who are spiritually burdened, spiritually weary, they just want to throw in the towel. And we are called to come alongside them, to encourage them in the faith. We're coming alongside them to pray for them, to love them, to help them through that storm, to get their eyes back on the Lord. Romans 11, 36 says this, that for from him, being Christ, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. In all that we do in ministry for one another, in all the ways that we serve one another, is to Focus each other back to the glory of God. Here's the reality, church. Our lives are for God. They're for His glory. It's forever. So we have to think about that when we minister to one another. When we come together, it's, Lord, help me. Give me wisdom to focus this person who's hurting. They're suffering. Look, we're not trying to minimize the pain they're going through. 
We're not trying to minimize the fact that right now they're going through great hardship. But we're trying to give them great hope in Jesus Christ. We're trying to give them great hope to endure, to press on in obedience. That our God is a good Father. That our God knows what is good for us. What will bring Him the most glory. Think about the gospel for a second, church. If you're here this morning and you profess to be a Christian this morning, what that means is that the scripture says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead. There was nothing that you can do to save yourselves. You couldn't earn or deserve forgiveness or heaven. But while you were dead, God, out of his abundant love, sent Jesus Christ to pay a penalty that we were supposed to pay. That my sin, all of my sin, all the penalty for my sin, all of your sin, and all the penalty for your sin was placed upon Christ. That he paid the penalty. That you can walk freely. And not just freely, but you could be clothed in his righteousness, stand before the Father, and be welcomed in. Church, think about that when we get discouraged, when there's someone sitting in front of you who's a believer. Remind them of what God has done in their life. Remind them that God has taken them from darkness and made them light. And now's the time to shine. Now in the midst of the pain and the suffering, it's time to shine. And that it can be done through the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning, you say, man, this is all good. I, I need some hope. I need some hope through suffering. And the first thing you need hope in is Jesus Christ. If this morning you have not turned to Christ in repentance, I mean, turn from your way of trying to do your thing, of your pursuit of sin, and turn to Christ and to trust in Him and what He has done on the cross, then today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you turn from self and turn to Christ. Today is the day that you receive the power of His Holy Spirit to empower you to live a life pleasing in His sight, to give you a new heart and new desire. Church, if you're here today and you are a believer, you have turned, but you know what? This message resonated a little bit that you are going through suffering, and there are days that you think about, man, I just need to throw in the towel. I'm done with this. But today would be a day you call on the pastors to come and pray for you, to encourage you, that you turn to one another, confess your sins, that you might be healed and restored and reconciled, that you know that there's a future and a hope, that this isn't it. That although the suffering is before you and it's so great, there is something much greater and much more wonderful. That the suffering of this present time does not compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. That's Romans 8.18. Cling to that verse. We have a great hope, church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your amazing love towards us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. That even those who have struggled, those who have come to a point of breaking and say, I just want to throw in the towel, that once again that you would remind them that you, God, are faithful. That you are still there and you still desire for them to turn to you, to be encouraged in prayer and in your word, to be healed and reconciled to you once again. Father, I pray for anybody in this place this morning that might not know you, that this morning you would draw them to the power of your Spirit to faith and trust in Christ, to repentance. Father, for the rest of us, that, God, we would be ministers of the gospel, that we would look to those to encourage in the faith, that, God, we would be wise when someone comes to us to confess sin, that we wouldn't minimize sin, but we would praise you, God, for the humility that you put in this person, 
or causing them to seek help. And God, we would encourage them with the gospel. God, to you be the praise and the glory now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.